So I think one of the things that's really hard about startups is getting attached, you know, to your own priors and then believing, you know, uh, believing the, the very vision that you're trying to espouse and create. You know, you kind of have to do that in order to kind of uh, celebrate and sell the vision. But, you know, if you do that too much, you might miss the reality that's staring you in the face. Welcome to the Clearview Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Monik Suri, the CEO of Therma. How are you doing today, Monik? I'm great, Brett. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm just getting over a really bad case of norovirus, but it's finally coming out the other side and I think I'll live. Oh, that is that is not fun, not fun. Having worked in the food safety space for the last six years, uh, we're very familiar, too familiar probably with norovirus. Not an easy one. Oh, yeah, I imagine. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about Therma. Um, what, what is it that you guys do exactly? Sure. Uh, Therma is a technology startup that builds uh, technology around the smart cold chain. We're building tools to monitor and improve uh, performance of refrigeration assets, trying to help reduce waste around uh, food product, uh, energy, and refrigerants. So we're trying to reduce waste of perishables, energy spend, and refrigerant emissions, uh, which are a greenhouse gas that goes into the cooling cycle. Hmm. Where did where did you come up with this idea? How did this how did this be, become something that you got into? Sure, it was a a, a journey uh, that makes sense. You know, in the rearview mirror at the time, it was kind of unfolding. The path was twisting and turning. I definitely didn't know where we were headed. Um, as life seems to be, you know, one of those journeys that, uh, that, that makes sense when you look back on it. Uh, we started working in technology, myself and my co-founder, Aaron Cohen, uh, building uh, compliance and safety management tools for the food supply chain. We were working on a, uh, a product, uh, our first product called Collaborative Inspect or Co-Inspect, and, uh, and hence my familiarity with neurovirus. Uh, I had a background as, a, as a, a lawyer, had just come out of law school and wanted to work at the intersection of law and technology, trying to build compliance and regulatory tools to improve health and safety. The year we got started with Co-Inspect, Chipotle had this big set of uh, food safety issues back in late 15, early 16. You might remember that. I remember that. And so we started working with food companies, food growers, uh, manufacturers, distributors, restaurant chains, uh, helping them replace outdated tools, uh, pen and paper uh, based systems with digital tools. We started replacing logbooks and line checkbooks with a mobile-first uh, workflow tool called Co-Inspect or Collaborative Inspect. And in the process of building Co-Inspect, we scaled that product to about 6,000 locations. It's still in use, and it's now part of our, our Therma platform. But uh, three years into that journey, we discovered that a key part of food safety was around the holding conditions of the product, making sure that the product was kept in the right temperature and humidity conditions. That's actually a big part of food safety. And what we learned was that most companies are still doing that manually. They're having uh, team members and employees check these temperatures using clipboards or in some cases using our, our mobile app, Co-Inspect. And we realized there was a better way of solving that than just a mobile first approach. We realized we could build sensors to automate the collection of that information. 
Historically, that had not been possible. Uh, the first generation of Internet of Things sensors, IoT sensors, use Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. And Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, while they work really well in certain environments, they don't work well in refrigeration interiors. Uh, the, the side of a refrigeration box is essentially like a Faraday cage that blocks signal from carrying out. And so historically, companies had not been able to use wireless sensors to monitor refrigeration automatically. We were able to use a new type of IoT uh, technology that's emerged recently uh, called LoRa, or based on long-range radio, that allows you to get signal out of environments, including refrigeration, that Wi-Fi and Bluetooth sensors can't. And so that allowed us to start building a 24-7 monitoring solution uh, that allowed us to monitor refrigeration assets, and hence Therma uh, was born. Therma is short for Temperature, Humidity, Equipment, Remote Monitoring Application. Team of nerds over here. Just happens to be an acronym as well. <laughs> it didn't even need to be. Therma already makes sense. That's great. Yep. So, so you basically you started by sort of by, by building in a platform that allowed people to automate. Hmm, well, not automate. You start by building a platform that made it easier for people to log the um, temperature data that they were manually recording, and then as the technology developed. For LoRa, you started to implement this into automatic temperature checking. Um, so now, now what you provide, you have these this platform and these sensors that are kind of closing the loop on keeping track of temperatures in refrigerated environments for food storage um, through the whole chain. Exactly, exactly. And recently, we moved from food uh, to pharma as well. So in the last six months, we've gone from food to food and pharma supply chains. Turns out, as we learned, as the world learned last year, uh, there's a lot of perishable product, not just in the food supply, but also in the pharma supply. Um, and much of that inventory is also uh, lost because of temperature excursions, because of human error, because of power outages and equipment failures. So um, we're now building a smart cold chain platform uh, across food and pharma supply chains. But yeah, that was our origins. We started with food safety. Wow. So what, what are some of the challenges that you've had um, kind of bringing this to market? Sure. I think uh, one of the biggest challenges, um, you know, especially kind of um, as we were getting started, was uh, figuring out which problems to focus on. Uh, you know, as an early stage company, um, there's so many problems in a given area and uh, one has limited resourcing. You know, so we bootstrapped the company for the first year and a half, and you don't have a lot of uh, product or engineering or design or sales and marketing. We were two people when we got started. We're almost 60 now. But when we were two people, there wasn't really that many things we could work on. So um, one has to be super focused. And I think that was really hard and is still really hard. We're still a small company. You know, when you think about, um, you know, all the different problems and all the different product features that need to be built. So trying to find the right problem to solve, I think, is one of the key challenges in early stage. Uh, my co-founder, Aaron, has worked in startups for 30 years. This is his fifth startup. Um, he's 54. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about pattern recognition and the things you learn working in startups over a career. This is my first startup. So I made every possible mistake you could <laughs> with Co-Inspect. As you do. As one does. And uh, one of the big challenges is not necessarily working on the, the, the problem in the right way or the right problem. When we first started, we were trying to help government agencies uh, perform inspections most, uh, more efficiently. 
and, and, and with more accuracy. So our first customer was government, uh, health departments. We sold a contract to and signed a contract with New York State Department of Health in Albany. That took almost a year uh, in 2015. And it turns out that that's a very hard way to build a large and, and high growth business. And so part of it was figuring out, okay, who should we be selling to and which problem should we be solving? Health and safety and managing compliance around health and safety codes is a big problem area. There's many ways to attack it and try and improve that problem. But, uh, but finding the right alignment of incentives, finding the right go-to-market, figuring out who the champion and who the buyer with budget is, is, uh, is quite hard. And so we ultimately went, uh, we pivoted. We've pivoted three times. The first pivot was going from selling a regulatory tool to government to selling a compliance tool to industry. And that was kind of the first pivot. Um, the second pivot was doing that in multiple verticals um, and, and, and shifting into just one vertical. So when we started the business, we were working on food, housing, uh, and manufacturing safety, all of which have huge areas of compliance in the field, all of which have lots of codes that require adherence and, and regulatory enforcement. And we ended up focusing on food kind of accidentally and kind of opportunistically because Chipotle had this big food safety crisis right when we were getting going. And we realized, wow, there's a huge problem and a huge need in the food supply chain, mainly because companies started contacting us out of the blue. Restaurant chains, food trucks, uh, food manufacturers started emailing and contacting us saying, can we use your compliance tool for food safety compliance? We knew nothing about food safety at the time. So that was the second kind of focusing effort that we made. That was in, in year two. The third, uh, you know, pivot uh, or, you know, kind of or shift has been um, going from solving that problem with a mobile first tool to solving that problem with a sensor based uh, approach. And that was a huge shift in 2019 in late 2019, realizing that um, that using sensors was a better way of solving the workflow than using a mobile app. Uh, though the mobile workflow tool is still very sticky and still you know, very much in use, it's much harder to get people to shift from pen and paper to a workflow tool uh, when they still have to do the work themselves. Uh, whereas with a sensor, it takes the work off of their plate. And so it's much better aligned. Uh, and, and also, it's not just about compliance, it's also about spoilage prevention and so um, margin improvement around food cost, as well as uh, labor, time saved, and energy cost. Those are much easier to get a business to buy on than just compliance alone. So, you know, right. it's taken years to figure those things out, but it comes back to working on the right problem in the right way. Well, it seems like with a with a sensor, you can also trust the data more. Because um, I could imagine there being circumstances where people are just like, oh, it's a couple of degrees off, but if just, just right in the right in what they're expecting or else we're just going to have a whole bunch more work on our plate replacing this thing, but it's fine. You know, like I can imagine that kind of stuff happening. Um, if you don't have the exact temperature that actually occurred being logged directly from a sensor. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, challenge around data accuracy, uh, with, with compliance and with checking these kinds of controls. Um, we tried to solve some of that with Co-Inspect by um, adding geolocation, by adding timestamps, by adding photo uploads, uh, all of these validation functions into the mobile workflow tool to make it more accurate, uh, more reliable, more trustworthy, less likely to be what they call in the industry pencil whipped. Pencil whipped is when you go in at the end of the week or the end of the month and mark everything is fine. 
<laughs> through the paper logbook. Yeah. Um, we That's were trying great. to solve for that, but doing that with a mobile workflow tool is hard because it requires people to then do this stuff you know, every single day, multiple times a day. That's not an easy friction to overcome, whereas a sensor eliminates that entirely. So um, I think you're exactly right that, that, that it is hard to get accuracy out of uh, you know, manual workflow. Not to mention, Brett, uh, with a manual approach, you can only really check this stuff when people are actually in the location. And over the last year with COVID, one of the things that happened was a lot of these locations where we have thermodeployed had lighter and lighter staffing. Many people stopped going in and many, many companies stopped um, having workforces in the box, in the location as often. So shifts are lighter. The staffing model is, is thinner. And as a result, there's fewer and fewer hours where these locations are as fully attended. And so that requires even more um, you know, remote monitoring. And so a 24-7 uh, tool for monitoring your assets and your inventory uh, becomes even more valuable in that context, whether that's a convenience store or a restaurant or a pharmacy. Mm -hmm. So I, I imagine like the, from what I saw on your website, like one of the value propositions is that it, you know, it saves, um, like it can save a store a lot of money from lost inventory. But another thing that it could do is uh, like increase, it can assure, it can assure customers. Um, if like, if I'm showing up to a Chipotle, is there a way that I could check their thermo system to know that, all of their refrigeration units have been within range, um, within the expected range for the past however amount of time? Yeah, theoretically, That's yes. Uh, you, 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 I mean, theoretically, one could go in and look at um, and, 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 and validate all of the holding conditions uh, of product. And we have customers uh, that are surfacing that data today to uh, inspectors, to the health department, to FDA and, and uh, USDA regulators, um, generally not to consumers directly, but to um, you know, many folks in the compliance and regulatory landscape who do care about that data and want to make sure it's accurate, uh, whether that's food or pharmaceuticals. So um, absolutely, that data record matters. Um, and as I mentioned, Brett, I joke with my friends, I'm a recovering lawyer, um, you know, uh, coming out of Harvard Law School, I was working with uh, Beth Novick. She was um, herself a, a former lawyer um, and had been the deputy CTO uh, of the U.S. in the first Obama White House. Beth and I uh, started a center at NYU together called the Governance Lab. Um, you know, the focus was to bring technology into law and government workflows to try and improve outcomes. And so validation and compliance is a big part of that. Um, of course, profitability and improving margin by reducing waste and loss of product and energy is another part of that for businesses. But but definitely having the accurate data as a stepping stone or starting point is key. Mm -hmm. Right. So you you mentioned having pivoted like three different times, and like any anytime anytime a company does a pivot, there's like there's the business case realization of something shifting. Um, and then there's also there's also something personal along with it. There's like a, a personal attachment to the direction things were headed, or certain outcomes. I'm curious, like what what kind of personal challenges you had moving into those pivots? Um, like what what attachments did you have to let go of to recognize the the need to make those shifts? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a. Um you know, you phrased the question really well. I think letting go of attachments is a big part of uh, success in in life and in early stage startups, especially. So much of um, 
the challenge I think in pivoting is one gets attached to uh, one's ideas. And uh, also it's very hard not to take, uh, you know, the, the lack of traction, the lack of momentum as a personal failure. You know, the, it's very personal in startups because, you know, one feels, and I certainly felt, attached to every single twist and turn, every single up and down uh, at a personal level. And so when you're feeling like you're putting your you know, blood, sweat, and tears into a product, into a sales motion, into a go-to-market, and discover that, oh, maybe we're working on the wrong problem, or maybe we're working on this problem in the wrong way, um, that's really painful, and it can be hard to kind of accept uh, what's actually happening. I think one of the really hard things for me with Co-Inspect and, and Therma was accepting that, you know, no one told me, no one said, uh, you know, you're not working on this the right way. No one said, oh, compliance or safety. Well, it's really not a top one, two issue. We're probably not going to be able to move quickly on a budget decision. Um, you know, one could read that between the lines. And certainly we realized over time that safety and compliance was not enough to kind of overcome a lot of the friction uh, around uh, changing how things are done with some of these workflows, that we needed more than that. We needed to offer more value to the customer. But I certainly didn't realize that at the time. And it took me a lot longer uh, you know, than I, I would have liked, <laughs> certainly looking back on it, to realize that uh, um, that's what was going on, uh, even though no one kind of said that necessarily so explicitly. So I think one of the things that's really hard about startups is getting attached you know, to your own priors. And then believing, you know, uh, believing the, the very vision that you're trying to espouse and create, you know, you kind of have to do that in order to kind of uh, celebrate and sell the vision. But, you know, if you do that too much, you might miss the reality that's staring you in the face. Right. Right. Yeah. What, what was standing in the way of you seeing that earlier, seeing those having those realizations previously? Well, certainly, I think one thing was, um, you know, I think of myself as an idealist, um, you know, and kind of optimist and idealist. And I was um, very much idealistic about compliance, about uh, the fact that, um, you know, a better way of doing compliance, of managing compliance should be an obvious uh, win, should be an obvious uh, solution for companies to adopt. Um, just because there is a better way of doing something, whether it's a regulatory enforcement action or a compliance action, doesn't mean businesses or government agencies are going to adopt that solution. There's a lot of other factors at work, and I think I didn't appreciate that, especially coming right out of grad school um, and with this kind of idealistic, let's bring technology into compliance and regulation. No one's doing that. You know, that was kind of my 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 bent coming into tech, whereas a lot of my friends who were venture capitalists, uh, private equity investors, tech entrepreneurs, a lot of them were telling me, well, this is going to be a pretty hard problem to solve. There's not a lot of monetary upside, uh, not a lot of incentive to change. Things are working mostly for companies to kind of do it on pen and paper and have their logs filled, whether the data is accurate or not. You're going to have a hard time, you know, upgrading that. Uh, I didn't appreciate that, uh, you know, just the kind of fullness of that at the time. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like a really common story. I, I remember having that same experience um, starting Clearview. I'd be going to clients and be like, look, everything's done on paper. We could do everything digitally. And a lot of times that that brought a lot of value. Other times it could have brought a lot of value, but it just wasn't seen or it would have just been an incremental increase in value um, or just people were really just stuck in doing things the way they wanted to do and didn't want to invest in changing the way they do things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it can be hard when you're 
when you're the, you know, the change agent and you can see the value and see the potential uh, when, when, when you're believing that, then it can be hard sometimes to face the reality. And it's also, I think, Brett, hard to know when to keep going and when to let go. <laughs> like when is it tenacity to kind of keep going and resilience? And when is it like, you know, uh, when does that virtue become a limitation? And when is it better to have, be agile and say, okay, this didn't work. Let's try something else. That knowing when to kind of make that shift, I think, is a really hard thing. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in something like regulatory and compliance. I think there's a, a lot of times that people feel like they have a sense of safety in how, how inaccurate things can be <laughs> so they can have a little bit of like fudge factor, you know, um, like people are afraid of having something that is like regulations or compliance based actually 100% efficient. Absolutely. Uh, I've spent hundreds of hours on topics around that with business owners, corporate decision makers, field staff uh, across you know many, many companies. And it is a hard nut to crack. It's not always easy to convince people that um, you know better and more accurate uh, compliance is actually um, in the long term better for them, better for their guests or consumers. Uh, better for the public. You know, oftentimes people see it as a tax or an overhead on on what yeah. they're doing. So that is a hard, it is not an easy uh, thing to do. With Therma, what's been really exciting is uh, though Therma does improve compliance and does improve safety, it's not the main ROI driver. The main ROI driver is around, um, you know, product, uh, you know, waste and uh, energy waste and refrigeration asset uh, lifetime uh, optimization. So it's about reducing waste on uh, cost centers, on things that actually cost businesses money, uh, like food or, you know, pharmacologics or energy. And that's much easier to get people to take action on. Yeah, absolutely. It has the nice byproduct of also improving safety and compliance. Much better way to align incentives, as, as we've learned, which is why we're getting a lot more traction in the past uh, year. Yeah, much better. Yeah, the, an, an example that I just thought of from a, another industry is like in, in trucking, they they require truck drivers to log log their driving hours and they they now do it electronically through like connected to the engine and so now you have situations where like a truck driver is parked for the eight hours they're supposed to be sleeping and like they need to be running the engine to keep their cab warm and if they're running out of fuel they might have to drive like 30 feet to go fill up the tank but then that like resets their entire clock and then they can't drive for another period of time you know, just because this thing was, you know, optimized for a certain, you know, for a certain uh, reading. And they're technically breaking that reading, but not really breaking the rule. But then because it's because it's all logged that way, then they're, you know, stuck. Totally. But um, but yeah, that's why I, I, I agree with you that moving in the direction of like what people's actual problem is, what their pain points are, like solving the loss issues um loss issues as well as you know actual health safety um which can become a loss for restaurants when you know you know chipotle i'm sure lost a lot of money in that uh in that whole situation they did yeah the 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 company lost uh, you know close to a third of their revenue for a number of years and market cap the market cap i think suffered a 42 percent loss uh, from peak to trough. So it was a major, wow. major destroyer of brand value. I think hundreds of millions of dollars of 
brand value were, were destroyed in a short window of time. I think what's been exciting with uh, food waste, and uh, for those uh, listeners who aren't familiar, and I was not, food waste and um, energy consumption in the refrigeration uh, cold chain, as it's called, are huge drivers, not just of business costs, but also of global warming. Food waste, if it were a country, would be the third largest source of emissions um, in the world after the U.S. and China. Um, and the cold chain uh, as a whole, because of its, um, uh, its, hard, you know, its significant use of greenhouse gases, refrigerants, to manage and cool uh, in the cooling cycle, is a huge source of warming. You know, over 10% of warming comes off of cold chain related activities. Um, and so uh, the ability to kind of improve that area of operations, reducing waste of not just food, but also energy and, and refrigerants by catching downtime events, a lot of our customers and a lot of our uh, team members and investors are excited about the climate implications of that work in addition to the profitability. I think that's been another major tailwind for us. Uh, there's a lot more in the in the common uh, understanding of, of, you know, problems around climate these days than there was, you know, there's a much more kind of broad based understanding of the challenges around climate and global warming than there was 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, and I think a lot of businesses are taking the commitments around sustainability much more seriously and making a lot more significant commitments around that, whether it's carbon neutrality or carbon emissions reduction, we're getting a lot of interest from major corporates around Therma because it's both a way of improving compliance and a way of reducing waste, but also a way of reducing emissions. And so it's kind of this triple win. And that's, I think, one of the biggest tailwinds for the business today. So again, it's, I think we're tying compliance to things that are even larger than compliance, like climate, and, and, and yeah. another way of kind of getting you know, change, aligning with change. Yeah. Where do you, where do you see Thermo heading? Um, like if you were, if you were imagining that there might be another pivot in the future, what would that be? Or where might you expand? What, what kind of new areas do you imagine you might get into? You just touched on it a little bit right there. I think the cold chain, as we've learned about it over the last couple of years, the cold chain, the refrigeration infrastructure layer around the world is massive. I had no idea how massive because I didn't come from the refrigeration industry. There's, um, you know, hundreds of millions of units of refrigeration in the world, not including domestic. So not including home fridges and freezers. There are hundred millions of refrigeration units in the business world. And most of these are not optimized or monitored in real time. Because the technology didn't exist until recently for wireless monitoring, uh, very, very few refrigeration units are optimized or monitored in real time. Only the largest refrigeration main lines in places like hospitals and fertility clinics um, and, and major uh, super stores are being monitored with wired solutions, typically. Uh, and so that means that there's a lot of opportunity for um, IoT-enabled uh, monitoring, both to catch downtime or catch loss events, but also to optimize energy settings. And when we talk to experts across uh, the cold chain in food and pharma, the kinds of uh, you know implications of the kind of waste that's going on are just massive. Today, um, you know, 30 plus percent of food is wasted from production to consumption. Not all of that is because of cold chain and refrigeration issues, but about 15% of it is. That's a huge number, just huge numbers. The Boston Consulting Group had an uh, a well-studied and well-cited article about food waste a couple of years ago that called it a 1.6 billion ton problem uh, with you know trillion, a trillion plus dollars of inventory thrown out. Uh, 
So even if 15% of that is because of storage and handling in the cold chain, it's a big number every year. That's an annual number of $150 billion of waste that could be avoided. When you think about pharma, when you replace food with pharma, pharmaceutical products are often a lot more expensive on a per pallet level. And so, uh, you know, com- combining the amount of loss across the cold chain with the fact that very little in the way of cold chain optimization is happening today, uh, you know, is really, you know, that's the kind of opportunity that I think as a, as a young early stage technology company, we're very excited about. That's exactly where we want to be playing. And what we've seen in the last um, six months with COVID vaccine delivery is not only is the cold chain really inefficient, there's a lot of downtime events and a lot of waste. Um, there have been vaccine losses in the past couple of months in places like Maine and Michigan and um, Washington State because of refrigeration failures and human error. But also the cold chain is pretty uh, underdeveloped. The Associated Press had an article in October that said that because of inadequate cold chain, approximately 3 billion people will not have access to a COVID-19 vaccine in the near future. 3 billion. That's a lot of people who will not get a vaccine around the world because they just don't have refrigeration available to them. The cold chain doesn't extend far enough. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I see. It's just kind of a big problem area. And we just raised a a growth round focused on trying to extend our monitoring into new markets, uh, both internationally. We're now in 13 countries and going from food into, into healthcare as well. So I think we're very much focused on this cold chain monitoring solution uh, and, and see it as kind of, um, you know, a multi-year journey, maybe, maybe um, one that was unexpected and unlikely, but definitely one that we've kind of embraced. Like cold, tran- cold chain transparency also seems to be an issue too. For example, what, what would stop me from being able to know if the COVID-19 vaccine that I receive actually stayed within temperature limits for its entire uh, like life cycle, I guess? Exactly, Brett. I think you're asking exactly the right question. Right now, it's very hard to get uh, data integrity across uh, production and consumption. It's very hard to know if what you're putting in your mouth or putting in your arm has had integrity in its holding conditions from, you know, from the life cycle. And, um, you know, the vaccine, uh, you know, uh, sensitivities around temperature are significant. In some cases, um, just, you know, um, uh, you know, a few minutes outside of the temperature holding bands can make a vaccine ineffective. So uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, estimates that around 35% of vaccines get lost because of temperature issues every year. That's a huge number. <laughs> like over yeah, a third of vaccines huge. are lost because of temperature issues. So um, we can't afford that with the COVID-19 vaccine. 35% of the vaccines like <laughs> being lost and or people thinking they're vaccinated when they're not. Exactly. That's why we're, you know, very much focused on the work these days. I think there's huge problems to be solved there. Yeah, well, this has been um, this has been really stimulating. Um, and thank you for talking about Thermo. I'm really excited for you guys. And I'm excited to, to see your guys' continued success and growth. Appreciate it. Pleasure joining you. I appreciate you having us on. Um, and if anyone's interested, please check us out. HelloTherma.com. Uh, feel free to contact me directly, Monik at hellotherma.com, M-A-N-I-K at hellotherma.com. We're based in the Bay Area. would love to chat and explore opportunities to partner. Thanks, Brett.